The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I am a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, we talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. We've got both uh, foreign policy and domestic policy covered this week on Deadline DC. In our first half hour, uh, CNN military analyst, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, joins us to discuss the first anniversary of the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then in the second segment, uh, Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works, uh, talks about uh, the GOP threat to crash the economy and cut Social Security. Also, we have on board our intrepid mech uh, executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the trains run on time and the show stays online. Uh, before we get to our first guest, uh, we have this clip from CNN International. Uh, their reporter, Melissa Bell, uh, discusses hope and resilience in Ukraine a year after the brutal Russian invasion. On one hand, Ukrainians are bracing this morning, Christine, for more uh, Russian strikes. That's what the head of Ukraine's military intelligence has been warning about on this grim one-year anniversary. But there is also this sense of resilience and of hope, really, after the show of support and solidarity that Ukrainians have seen on the part of the international community over the course of the last year and again specifically this week with the visit of Joe Biden. And in fact, in the last couple of hours, what we've seen here just outside uh, St. Sophia's Church is an extraordinary uh, show of force on the part of the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky, speaking uh, to soldiers and to the families of fallen soldiers about the extent to which what happens over the course of the next few months is up to them. It is you who will decide whether we are all going to exist, whether Ukraine is going to exist. Every day, every hour, it is you, Ukrainian soldiers, which will decide it. Now, there was very tight security, as you'd expect, uh, for uh, that event that took place just downstairs, just down there outside St. Sophia's. Uh, but it was, of course, uh, an important reminder that President Zelensky intends to stand strong, that the Ukrainian people have achieved what they have achieved over the course of the last year, but not without a cost. This is a country bracing for the worst today on this anniversary, Christine, but also marking what has been an incredibly costly 
year for Ukraine. And whilst we don't have the specific figures on the losses on either side recently, Mark Milley put them at about 100,000 soldiers on the Russian side, 100,000 soldiers on the Ukrainian side. And there are, of course, the some 40,000 civilians who've died as well. The cost to them, no one has been spared in this country by this last year of war. And I think that is at the heart of so many of the commemorations we're going to see. Okay, that was Melissa Bell from CNN International uh, discussing hope and resilience in Ukraine a year after the brutal Russian invasion. Uh, speaking of CNN, uh, CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, joins us this afternoon to discuss uh, the first year of the uh, Ukrainian uh, invasion, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, he founded, uh, he is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded his company after serving in the Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. His Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, that's C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, and his website is CedricLayton.com. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Colonel Layton. Thanks for joining us again. It's my pleasure, Brad. It's great to be with you. By the way, I think uh, I was uh, thinking about this, and I think you're on top of the leaderboard uh, for guest appearances on uh, <laughs> Deadline DC, uh, which may be a mixed uh, blessing. Uh, I do want to... Uh, uh, then to the, you know, last week was a big week uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Friday was the one year anniversary uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, last week, uh, President Biden took a dramatic trip uh, to Kiev, uh, where he made a joint appearance, uh, strolling the streets of the city with. President Zelensky, while air raid sirens uh, were blaring, uh, it was, uh, in my opinion, a masterful experience. But uh, let me ask you, where do we stand now in Ukraine after a year of uh, heavy conflict? So as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, Brad, what we're looking at is uh, a a lot of movement that occurred uh, in the summer and in the fall of this past year. Uh, but right now we're basically at a standstill. So uh, the front line extends from the northeastern part of the country uh, all the way down to the south. And then it bends to the west uh, toward Kherson. Uh, Kherson is the, the city that uh, Ukraine was able to regain uh, from the Russians, but it is still under Russian shelling. Uh, so it, it's not a place that uh, one can go to safely any, uh, you know, at this point in time, uh, but it's still in Ukrainian hands. Um, what we're also seeing is that in the eastern part, in the Donbas region, uh, specifically in the Donetsk uh, Oblast or province, um, there's a lot of fighting going on around a town called Bakhmut. Um, and the Russians are claiming, this includes the Wagner Group as well as the regular Russian uh, military, they are claiming that they uh, have been able to capture some of the towns on the north and the northwest of Bakhmut. Uh, if those claims turn out to be true, uh, the Russians will have cut 
one of the main highways that leads to Bakhmut. That's dangerous for the Ukrainians that are manning that garrison there, that are manning, uh, you know, that trying to keep the Russians out of uh, that town. Um, so the Ukrainians have to be very careful at this point uh, to make sure that they don't lose uh, too many of their forces. I mean, any loss is, is of course, a, a, you know, an incredible tragedy, but the Ukrainians are at a significant disadvantage in terms of manpower, in terms of population uh, and other resources. So they have to be very, very careful uh, to make sure that they not only keep the gains that they were able to gain, uh, regain in, in the last year, uh, but that they also don't lose too much because there's a lot in play uh, before weapons arrive from the West. Okay. Uh, let me ask you uh, this. Uh, I, uh, there, uh, anytime there's anniversary or anything, uh, first year of an invasion or two years of Joe Biden's presidency, there are national polls that come along with it. And I was looking at a, a poll, national poll conducted by the Pew Research Center, uh, and it shows that uh, there's been a significant decline uh, in uh, support among Americans uh, for American uh, military aid to the Ukraine. Uh, and it's been especially pronounced among Republicans. Uh, back in, uh, uh, there's been a, uh, I think, a 25-point decline among Republicans in support for uh, Ukrainian military aid. And it seems to me, and we've talked about this when you've been on the show before, that, you know, we are in for a long, grueling war. Uh, my guess is uh, Putin sees the uh, shakiness of Republican support for military funding uh, for uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, and the Russian dictator, you know, is probably going to grind this thing out. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that the president went to Ukraine, not only to uh, buttress uh, Ukrainian morale uh, and Eastern European morale, but also speaking to the American public. And I, I guess what I'm going to ask you is, you know, what can the president say uh, to make sure to make yeah, to make sure that we're, uh, I'm going to ask you this question, uh, as usual, I've run past my deadline. We're going to be back with more of Colonel Cedric Layton, USA Force retired CNN military analyst, after this message. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I want to remind our radio listeners uh, that if you'd like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, you can uh, join us and see the show on twitter.com front slash brad bannon and on facebook.com front slash deadline dc with brad bannon front slash videos our guest in this segment uh is colonel cedric layton u.s air force retired uh, who is also a military analyst uh for cnn and we are discussing uh ukraine uh let me ask you this. Uh, we have already committed, along with our NATO allies, uh, to uh, sending uh, advanced tanks uh, to Ukraine. Uh, what's the timeline on that? I gather it will take several months to train crews before they're effective, uh, combat effective. 
Yeah, it certainly will take several months, Brad. Uh, you know, the key thing is that, uh, you know, luckily the Ukrainian crews, most of them have had experience with other types of tanks, but the Abrams tanks, which are the tanks that uh, the U.S. is going to be sending, are uh, very sophisticated um, pieces, and uh, they are probably the most sophisticated, technically sophisticated tank in the world, followed closely by the other tank that the Ukrainians are getting, which is the Leopard tank from the Germans uh, and from other countries that bought it from the Germans. So uh, this is going to require uh, some very quick um, training efforts. Uh, there's a lot of training going on in Germany right now. Uh, there's training in other countries like Poland and the Baltic states, uh, in Britain, uh, where they're training on the other, the third tank that they're getting, the Challenger tank. Uh, so there is a lot of that going on. And those kinds of things will become incredibly important uh, because the quicker the Ukrainians can get trained, uh, you know, probably within the next four to six months, uh, the better off they're going to be. As long as they can keep it within uh, six months or so with some significant additions to Ukraine's firepower, uh, that will allow Ukraine to at, le at least stabilize the lines that, of, uh, that they're defending right now. And once they do that, they should then be able to mount counteroffensives against the Russians. Uh, it's going to be difficult for them to mount those counteroffensives right now or within the next month or two. Uh, but uh, given the next four to six months, they should be able to do something and be able to sustain it. Uh, if they can do it earlier, obviously more power to them. Uh, but these are the kinds of things that uh, you know require a lot of consideration, a lot of pre-planning. And that uh, is something that's going to be, I think, difficult to achieve given the slowness of some of the deliveries of the weapon systems into, into the actual combat zone. On the subject of uh, weapons, uh, four members of the House of Representatives, uh, there are all sorts of bills uh, been proposed in the House of Representatives. Uh, a group of about 20 Republicans uh, have uh, introduced a bill that would uh, set a, uh, uh, a end date uh, for military aid to Ukraine. Uh, four other members, including two Democrats and two Republicans, have introduced a bill uh, that would uh, allow the United States to send fighter planes uh, to the Ukraine. Now, I believe President Biden said he's against uh, sending fighter planes. Uh, what's uh, your take on that issue? So President Biden has basically said that uh, he's against sending fighter planes, specifically the F-16, for now, was the key phrase that he used. So uh, what that means to me is that he doesn't believe that the Ukraine Ukrainians have the capacity or the trained pilots to actually, uh, you know, man this this system and use it effectively in the short term. Long term, a completely different issue. And when you're planning for Ukraine's future air force, what that'll actually look like, it should look something like the Polish air force, which uh, has. Uh, is in the process of transitioning from its old Soviet equipment uh, to F-16s and even F-35s. Uh, so that would be the future of the Ukrainian Air Force. But for the present, uh, it, it does make sense to uh, be very careful with what we send there and make sure that whatever we send, uh, not only that they have the trained personnel, such as trained pilots, uh, but also that they have trained uh, maintenance personnel, 
uh, trained communications personnel, and uh, that the radar operators understand uh, what an F-16 looks like compared to, say, a Russian aircraft. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that become really, really important, and that's uh, why I think there's such a uh, difference. It, it, these artificial timelines are very, very bad uh, for any type of planning purpose, and the legislature always wants to get into the executive's business when it comes to these kinds of things. Uh, deadlines really don't work in this sense, uh, but uh, things have to definitely be uh, sped up in order for things to be effective for the Ukrainians and for the Ukrainians to be able to defend their territory. Okay, uh, let me ask you, uh, China was in the news last week. Uh, the uh, United States uh, warned the Chinese that uh, we would be very disappointed if they uh, sent arms uh, to Russia uh, uh, to fight Ukrainians. Uh, what is the Chinese role in this thing? And I think they're even talking about, you know, promoting their own peace plan. Uh, right. Do you think the Russia, uh, the Chinese are going to aid uh, Russia militarily? Are they already doing that? I think they're already doing it in a very limited fashion. Uh, we have to remember that uh, both China and Russia have the goal of uh, defeating uh, the United States in, in the sense that uh, what they want to do is they want to make sure that the United States is no longer the preeminent global power. Uh, they both see the United States as uh, holding them back uh, for various historic and geopolitical reasons. And so what the Chinese are doing is they're providing intelligence support and there's a possibility uh, that they could provide what we call lethal aid, in other words, ammunition, uh, weapon systems, drones, uh, those kinds of things to the Russians. Uh, it's highly likely that they've done some of this already, uh, but uh, for them to be actually accused by the United States and the United States to have proof that they're doing that, that's, of course, a completely different issue. Uh, so we can expect the Chinese to uh, try to ramp things up in this direction if they go. Uh, go back from the brink, if they don't do this uh, in a large public fashion, then that will be uh, somewhat of a victory for the United States. But uh, I would say don't bank on that happening anytime soon. Uh, what does that, you know, is there anything we can, you know, say or do to the Chinese and stop them from doing this? Well, uh, there are certain uh, consequences that we can, uh, you know, make sure they understand. We can make things a bit more difficult on the financial side for them. Uh, we are their largest trading partner. Uh, so there are certain things. Of course, they hold a lot of our debt, as you know. Uh, so it gets a little bit interesting when it comes to those kinds of things. But um, there's a lot that uh, we can do to stop the recovery process of their economy uh, from the COVID pandemic. And uh, I think it's uh, that's something that uh, we're looking at uh, from a, a, a political and a financial standpoint. Okay, uh, Colonel Layton, thank you uh, again for uh, joining me. I see you're so excited to being on the show. You had to distract yourself in your seat today. Uh, that's right. Well, <laughs> but thank you very much. Uh, that was Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Uh, CNN military analyst. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC right after these messages. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Welcome back to Deadline DC. I'm Brad Bannon, a columnist for The Hill, 
and the president of the Bannon Communication Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. We're going to start this segment off uh, with a clip from the President Biden's State of the Union address, where he talks about Social Security. Some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look. Uh, that, of course, was folks, President Biden. Uh, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> folks, so folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. We got unanimity. Uh, the new Republican majority in the U.S. House is holding the health of the economy hostage in return for reductions in spending. The GOP has refused to specify the cuts they want, but soon after organizing the House, GOP members floated proposals that would comfort the comfortable and afflict the afflicted. These changes would weaken Social Security and Medicare, which are popular programs that have served Americans well for decades. Here to talk about Social Security uh, is uh, Alex Lawson, who is Executive Director of Social Security Works, which promotes the protection and expansion of a great program which has served millions of Americans for 87 years. The Twitter handle for Social Security Works is SSWorks. Uh, Alex, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Brad, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and this is an important issue. Oh, by the way, your Twitter handle is ALAW202. Let me ask you this. It seemed to me uh, that, you know, watching that clip from the president's State of the Union, that he put re the president put Republicans on the spot. Uh, soon after the State of the Union, uh, Senator Rick Scott from Florida uh, actually reissued uh, his law, his proposed proposal to sunset federal programs uh, and except for Social Security, Medicare, and I think the Navy. And so I, my question is, how is there still a big Republican threat to Social Security or did the president dissipate it? Well, I think there's two, there's two questions there, right? One, um, did he dissipate it? Yeah. I mean, did he masterfully play the Republicans uh, against their own plans and desires and decades long campaigns to uh, destroy Social Security and Medicare? Yep. 
Uh, President Biden did that. I think it was masterful. Um, is there still a threat? Obviously, there's still a threat. <clears throat> this is like when the Republicans, you know, uh, what about when their Supreme Court nominees were like, the entire thing is set up for them to overturn Roe. And they're like, no, nah, it's not what we're doing. Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, this the, the, the justices to get confirmed lied, right? Overtly lied. And the moment they got the power to do it, they did what they've been saying all along. Uh, so if you want to know what a politician believes, you got to listen to what they tell their donors. Or you can listen to Senator Johnson, who's too stupid uh, to get what's going on. So the day after this, the State of the Union, he issued a statement that just was like, yeah, I've been calling it a, a Ponzi scheme for years. And I guess now we're not allowed to tell the truth. That was what he said about uh, his plan. And Brad, you know this, but his plan would sunset programs every year. There would have to be a vote on Social Security. And what they always leave out on these proposals, and, and let's just give uh, uh, enough words to Rick Scott literally put out his old plan. It was all about Social Security and Medicare. I mean, this is like, this is the most, he is absolutely pretending that we don't have video cameras, right? That we can't <laughs> Google and find transcript of what he said before. Um, and that's because the Republicans are terrified of the people finding out what they have sold, what the Republicans have sold uh, for their power. And what they've sold is our Social Security and Medicare. You know, that's what McCarthy's, the deals he made was that we will hold the world economy hostage uh, with the debt ceiling in order to push through cuts to Social Security and Medicare and then blame the Democrats about it. It's the exact same play that they used with Obama. Uh, and they're just mad because Biden uh, flipped the game board. He refused to play their game. And he's making them play uh, on his turf, on his setup. Or what we have long said, go on offense on this, right? Social Security and Medicare are extraordinarily popular. Uh, vocally stand uh, with the American people on this and force the Republicans to defend their position of cutting benefits. Uh, and that's what he's done. But the threat is so real. Yeah, it seems to me that the Republicans are torn. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, and I think some Republicans have recognized the fact uh, that cutting uh, Social Security and Medicare are still the third rail of American politics, uh, that you touch at your own peril. Uh, but on the other hand, they seem to have this ideological obsession with Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, despite the fact that it's political poison, they just can't help themselves. I think it goes back to the, you know, their secret dream in life or nightmare for us is to basically undo the New Deal. And to undo the New Deal, you have to get rid of the signature program of the New Deal, which is the Social Security system, which, as you just pointed out, has worked well, has worked gangbusters for 87 years now. No one's ever missed a payment. Uh, and, you know, if it, uh, if it works, don't fix it. But the Republicans have this ideological obsession with getting rid of it. And which side do you think is going to win out? I mean, at some point, the House is going to take a position. 
do you think they will, because of their ideological obsession, they'll just say, well, you know, screw the politics. We're just going to do this because we've always wanted to do it. Well, how do you think this is going to play out? That's a difficult uh, prediction because, uh, you know, the any one member in the House can can um, upset McCarthy's speakership. Uh, they can call into question his speakership and they have to run another uh, election. But I think the White House is positioned as strongly and as aggressively as we could hope uh, in the negotiations that are to come. Uh, so that's what I think where we are right now is in the We're going to have to uh, stop for a minute uh, to take a break for our radio listeners, but we will be continuing on video for our viewers on Twitter and Facebook. Our guest is Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Brad Bannon. In this segment, we're talking about uh, Social Security and the Republican threat to crash the economy if they don't get their own way. Uh, Our guest in the uh, segment is Alex Lawson, who is executive director of Social Security Works, which is dedicated to protecting and expanding Social Security. Alex, why don't you explain, we we were talking about solvency before we went to break. Uh, There are some questions about solvency, uh, and you mentioned Senator Sanders and Senator Warren's proposals. Uh, I don't think most people understand the difference between the general fund, you know, federal Treasury and the Social Security Fund. Could could you explain that, please? Yeah, it's pretty simple, and I think people do get it. They might not be able to like vocalize it um, or like in a wonky way, but they get it because what it means is no one's giving us anything with Social Security, right? We all know that because we see it. We're paying in on all of our paychecks. You see it. It's our money. Uh, it's held in trust for us, the American people, uh, and then we get the benefits uh, when we need them when we no longer work because we retire, or if we face a life-changing event and become disabled and can no longer work, uh, or for their surviving uh, minor children in the death of a breadwinner, uh, that's retirement, disability, and survivor benefits. Um, That's what social security is. It's a big social insurance program. Um, It's not paid for by the general fund or the the federal budget, right? So a deficit that you always hear about That's happening in the general fund, right? Because that's where that is. Social security is a self-funded program. It can literally not add a penny to the deficit. It can't borrow any money. Uh, So what happens is over time, rich people have been able to escape more and more of their income from the social security system. I was explaining before, people only pay in on the first $160,000 of their wages. After that, they don't pay in on anything Uh, more than that. They also, people don't pay in on uh, unearned income, like capital gains, fringe benefits, you know, things like Mitt Romney's, I think, whatever, billion dollar IRA and things like that. They're very, they have teams of lawyers who come up with tricky ways to evade paying their fair share. Uh, And because of that, uh, there is a projected uh, shortfall in funding in 2033 um, there right now, the projection is there's about a 20% gap. And what that means, because Social Security can't borrow money, 
is if we hit that date, benefits automatically go down 20% uh, in 2033 because they just match what's coming in. Uh, so that is a real issue, right? In 2033, people benefits are far too low right now that people can't face a 20% cut. Uh, but the Republicans, when they're like, oh my God, something has to be done, we have to act on this. They're always proposing like 23 or percent or more benefit cuts, right? So you're like, that's not a solution. If the problem is a 20% benefit cut in 2033, a 23% benefit cut today is just the problem sooner and worse. Uh, and that's like the, what I just said there was Lindsey Graham's proposals, 23%. I looked him in the eyes and said that, and he nodded that that was in fact uh, his plan when I testified in front of the budget committee. So that's what solvency is. The, the people who have the ideas to get it into long range actuarial balance, uh, that's the me, <laughs> that's Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, uh, and a host of other Democrats who all we do is we get billionaires and, and uh, millionaires to pay in on all of their income, just like the rest of us. And then we not only see this uh, in, you know, to over 75 years in the future, all benefits, but we increase benefits and still hit solvency. Um, so generally, when you hear like Mitt Romney or Joe Manchin even, you know, saying, oh, we've got to do something now uh, on Social Security, really what they mean is the closer we get to 2033 with the automatic benefit cut, the harder it is to do it on the benefit side. Because at that point, the closer you get, if people aren't going to want to see their benefits go down tomorrow. So we've seen this before. It will be done on the revenue side. The reason they always gin up the, the fear of solvency is so that they can get the benefit cuts now. Um, and that's, you know, one of the most despicable games that's played with Social Security by the Republicans. Uh, and again, what President Biden, what Senator Sanders, Senator Warren and others are doing is just really masterfully wielding that back against them, right? Saying, oh, if you actually care about this, it's great that you now care about this program. Like, join us and our plans. We'd happily have elected Republicans stand with their Republican constituents who overwhelmingly love and want to see Social Security expanded. You know, I read something uh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, Senator Sanders was talking about his security, uh, his plan, his proposal to uh, uh, make sure that wealthy Americans pay a, you know, fairer share of their of their Social Security taxes. Uh, and it struck me that it made a lot of sense because it, it's my impression uh and I'm speaking as a Democratic strategist here, that uh, Democrats seem to me are playing defense on this issue. Uh, we're always defending Social Security, but as you know, part of a good defense, we should be more aggressive uh, in the way that Senators Sanders and Warren are, because it seems to me we're really uh, uh, playing defense on this issue, and you know, we should we should play and and i guess the question is why aren't we you know 
playing offense in, in a way that Senator Sanders and Warren wants, because, you know, it seems to me that's what it's going to come down to is making sure wealthy Americans pay a bigger part of their fair share in keeping Social Security going. But uh, we do seem to spend all our time just defending the program, which is fine. We need to do that, but it's not a good way to win a fight. That's right. Um, and, you know, I will say that we have spent a decade between the last time they held the debt ceiling hostage and today building out um, Social Security expansion as a core tenant of it's just really right in the center of the Democratic Party now. I mean, President Biden ran on a plan to expand Social Security. Right. I mean, um, the vast majority of elected Democrats in the House uh, and the Senate support a bill to expand Social Security. So this is a core. It, this we, the setup is very different. And our argument then, I think um, Senator Tom Harkin was one of the first to really um, say it and, and put a bill in and say exactly what you just said. Like, we should be on offense here. The American people are with us, not only on not wanting a single penny of benefit cuts, but people want to increase benefits. And when you tell them that we can pay for it all by just having the rich pay in on all of their income, uh, the first thing most people say is, wait, they don't pay in on all of their income. And you're like, no, they only pay in on the first 160,000. And then people are like, what a crock. Yeah. Uh, right. And then they want that to happen. Republicans, independents and Democrats. So that's what the, the Republicans are terrified of, the fact that their deeply unpopular ideas uh, are being exposed. And, you know, the timidity that you sort of raise in the question about Democrats um, we could do a whole show on that where I, I feel like philosophically it comes from an overreaction to the Reagan Thatcher neoliberal, um, you know, like yeah. wave that happened. Um, but slowly but surely we're seeing uh, the Democrats return to not just defend the popular programs that Democrats created in the first place, uh, but to actually uh, expand them. So I, I think um we're seeing a new ferocity here. And, and in politics, I think it's, it's important that uh, uh, President Biden was having fun at his State of the Union when he had the, Democrat, uh, the Republicans on their heels, when they were hooting and hollering because they knew that the, the, the country was watching and he was exposing them for wanting to do exactly what they were doing. Um, so I, I think that we're seeing... Um, you, Let's come back to this question, Brad, um, closer to the, the presidential election. And I bet you we're going to see even more support uh, for Social Security expansion. And this is something that's going to take a while because you need 60 votes in the Senate to expand Social Security or you need to uh, do away with or modify the filibuster. Um, so the political board, the chessboard of who holds uh, what seats, you know, not only do we have to the Democrats have to regain the House. Um, the Democrats have to change or eliminate the filibuster in the Senate as well to get it done. Uh, so this is a longer term fight that we're talking about. Well, Alex, I'm sure we're going to talk about this again, because, uh, as I said before, the Republicans are obsessed uh, about you know, I think if you just asked them and they spoke truthfully, they would say, yeah, we got to, you know, get rid of this sucker. It's it's socialism. Um, and uh, so I think we are going to talk about this again. And one of the things I want to say is you reminded me of something important. And I'm, we don't have much time. We don't have any time to talk about this. But uh, the Republicans aren't threatening to shut down government. They're shut 
threatening to shut down the economy, our economy and the world economy. Our guest in this half hour has been Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works. I want to thank Alex. I want to thank uh, Cedric Layton from CNN for talking about Ukraine. We'll be back next week with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.